So, g'day, Dominic Parfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Big thank you for listening, and make sure you hit that subscribe button on your smartphone or fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this podcast. We don't ask for much in return, do we, Brian? I don't think we do. No, but uh, um, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to iTunes and leave us a review. So obviously a five-star review would be great, such as those recently left by, uh, there's an RVC student, 2017, who comments, very easy to understand, great level of detail, perfect for long drives. Um, and also there's one from user, U, uh, sorry, 052816. It's a bit of an interesting uh, handle for, for, for that. Anyway, but they comment, thankfully, uh, useful and refreshing. So I don't think... Um, as well, there were a couple of other comments on iTunes that I saw. One said hilarious. Hmm. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure we can match that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. That was from A from Strum. Um, uh, but at least they sort of augmented that with what marvellous job you're doing, keep, keep it up. And, and lastly, there was a, a Nottingham student who said uh, it's an absolutely fantastic podcast, so couldn't revise without it. Well, at least we're, we're hitting some notes, and, and thank you very much for that. Um, and uh, for all of those people, actually, that have taken exams, I uh, hope it all went uh, well and, and uh, enjoy this this time before for real life uh, kicks in anyway uh, laura tweeted uh, as well to, to me one, one of those which is good that she she really loves the rvc podcast and thanks us and brian for providing such a valuable um source of easy accessible high quality information so thanks laura for that so those five star reviews tweets uh, really help our metrics that uh, i i don't understand um but something to do with the analytics of itunes make it easier for others to uh, to access that that information so uh, so 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 thank you very much so today we're going to talk to uh, Kate English. So uh, Kate is one of our homegrown lecturers here at the RVC uh, in clinical pathology. So homegrown, as in, let's have to quantify that. So she did an undergrad training at the RVC and spent a couple of years in, in practice um, at, and before returning to the RVC to train as a clinical pathologist. And then, then spent some time in, in IDEX in, in Weatherby um, prior to coming back to uh, uh, to the RVC in 2006. So I'm sad to say that, uh, Kate, you're off to NWL. Well, they say a change is as good as a holiday. Yeah. So, so it says, uh, Kate, on your on your bio that, that you have an interest in respiratory fungal disease and research pneumocystis and aspergillosis. Um, but today we're going to talk about uh, uh, mostly about um, getting the most out of your haematology and complete blood count. But maybe just get back with the the respiratory stuff. Surely you, you would have wanted to, to go to uh, Louisiana or the southern states of America if you're interested in those sort of uh, diseases. There's certainly a lot more fun fungi over there. <laughs> but um, we can get a little bit of fungal interest going in the UK and certainly with all the level of travel that everybody's doing, we can see things popping up all over the place that we wouldn't have expected necessarily to see in past years. So. Fair, enough. Fair enough. That's that's good. Well, well, thank you um, very much, Kate, for joining uh, um, Brian and myself on, on the on the pod. Um, so, so maybe we, before we get to how we like read results, so so maybe are there any tips you can suggest about collection and um, should we always look at a make a blood smear or even look at one if we have automated machines in in practice? Um, so, do you have any tips to just start us off, maybe? But the best thing to do is to try and get your sample. Um, as clean a stick as possible because obviously the more difficulty you have with getting a blood sample the more likely it is to clot and once you get a clot in the sample then obviously you have issues with getting a decent result so if you have a challenging patient or you're having difficulty with a vein you may find that actually it might be better to go and try another vein to get a clean sample to get a reliable result um, I would always pop it into EDDA to start off with 
and make sure that you mix it straight away. So that's one of the most important things is if you're taking a sample to do haematology and biochemistry that you'd, as soon as you've taken that sample you put it into the EDTA tube first and mix it. One of the things you do have to do, be careful about doing is making sure that you don't touch the side of the syringe to the side of the EDTA tube because if the syringe gets EDTA contaminated then that obviously will affect the biochemistry results later on. But it's more important to have your haematology sample anticoagulated than to sort of sort out everything else with the sort of the biochemistry. So, and once you've mixed your sample and got that right ratio of anticoagulant and haematology, then obviously always make a blood smear. So, and making a blood smear as soon as you can means that the cells that you're seeing are going to be as fresh and as representative as they are as circulating in the patient. And that gives you the most information on your patient and lets you work out how likely it is that you've got inflammation going on or what other changes there might be. And so do you make your blood smear, say if, you're, if you put a sample in the EDTA, do you make your blood smear from that sample or do you use the, ideally would you use the, the, the fresh blood that you've collected that's not anticoagulated? I would ideally use your mixed EDTA sample. Um, so simply because if you've mixed it thoroughly, then you will get a, an even distribution of the cells, you will get a better spread of cells on the smear and you'll be able to see things a little bit more reliably. If you use that last little drop of blood in the syringe, which is really tempting, and I know that you know it's very easy to do, you may find that actually because the cells have been sitting in the syringe for a little while while you've been mixing all the tubes, um, that you actually get a little bit of sort of clumping of cells and particularly clumping of platelets, and that can give you a slightly skewed version of what you're looking at. And, and it might lead you to make some assumptions about populations that might not necessarily be entirely correct. So you can always with it with a collection system, I know in, in people everything's standardised as in they normally use vacutainers so a certain amount of, uh, of, of pressure I suppose is applied to, to, to uh, um, withdrawing those samples. And I know from some work that we've done, like clinically looking at, say, platelets, where, where things need to be consistent and standardised, that, that that's an approach that we take. But are you, are you aware of anywhere in the, in the world that has that, you know, a lab that has that approach and, and vets that do have a standardised technique? Because I know we, a lot of the time we use those, uh, those small tubes that um, fill to maybe 1.3 millilitres, and so we get that any which way we can. Or do you, has there been any movement to try and standardise things a bit more, or, or do you think it's just too difficult because of the variation in size and patients that we have, etc.? I mean, it's something that certainly people talk about, and I think there are some institutions that have moved over to trying to use the smaller vacutainers. Um, as you point out, it's always going to be a problem with our really small patients, and particularly our young sort of puppies and kittens, that actually taking a whole vacutainer might not be appropriate for their size and weight. So um, it may be something that we can work on as a profession, um, but there are always going to be exceptions where actually that may not be the most appropriate approach. Uh, the important thing, as you point out, is to make sure that you know how, what volume should be going into your EDTA tube and make sure that you only fill it up to that black arrow line. And it's worth checking the tube before you start filling because some of those black arrows will be halfway up the label and some of those black arrows will be at the top of the label and if you overfill the tube then you you will get clotting and then it 
you've essentially sort of lost all the benefit of trying to get it mixed as soon as you take it out of your patient. And there's nothing worse submitting a sample that has a clot in it. It does create problems. <laughs> fair, fair enough, fair enough. So, so do you have, like, um, as far as like, when you make a blood smear, um, do you have any um, specific tips? Because I, I know that actually to, to make it, although, although it's something that everyone does and you, you, you train when you're at university to, to do it, but actually to do it well, it, it, it does take a bit of skill. And I also, um, if I'm, I'm, please correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the angle that you hold the, uh, the spreading slide uh, needs to be changed depending on how an anemic the, the the patient is to get a representative sample rather than probably what I do is is just look at the feathered edge because that's where all the uh, interesting stuff is going to be. Um, I mean, it's always worth trying to make blood smears. The more blood smears you make, the easier it is to do. Um, and even now, I do quite often have days where I go and make blood smears and I make three and chuck the first two and kind of go, this is the blood smear I've got. <laughs> this one looks fine. So... If you're consistent with the amount of blood that you put onto the slide and you're consistent with the, the length of the slide that you spread the blood along, then you can start to make estimations a little bit just by looking at the blood smear um, about what the PCV might be and what the white cell count might be. Um, and so you could do that even if you just have a microscope and you don't actually have a functioning haematology analyzer or a centrifuge to get a PCV. You're absolutely right that if you have a very anemic animal, it is easier to sort of push the blood along the slide. So you do need to have a slightly steeper angle of your spreader slide so that you can stop your blood smear a little bit earlier on that slide. So ideally, you want to try and make that blood smear so that it only takes the middle sort of two thirds of the slide. So you've got a little bit of space at either end. Um, and it's probably not quite so important if you're using a diff quick sort of stain in practice because you can make sure that you submerge all of the red cell all of the blood and get it stained but if you're sending it off for to an external laboratory to be looked at most of them will be using automated stainers and there will be a strip of slide at either end where they won't stain so if you've made a very long blood smear and you've got the feathered edge at the very end of the slide um, a lot of laboratories won't ever get to look at those cells because the stainer won't actually cover them so. Fair enough. Fair enough. And so, um, so when you, you do, do, do you think it's it's good for everyone to have a look at a blood smear, like before they put in an analyzer or or, or send it off to external pathology? I think it's always a really good idea to have a blood smear. So, whenever we, even our sort of the analyzers that we have in the laboratory that we know that we run regular control materials through and we know that the results are likely to be reliable and hopefully accurate um, work best on healthy patients so if we're running lots of pre-anesthetic screens for routine procedures like neutering then the machine is probably going to perform really very well most of the time though we're going to be more worried about our sick patients and the machines are never as good at looking at sick patients so they will have a really good go and they will kind of say, well, these are the these are the neutrophils or what we think are neutrophils and these are what we think are lymphocytes. But if we have atypical cells there because the patient is unwell, then the machine is not going to be as good at sorting them. But that is something that we can really very much see on a blood smear. So, and that's why it's also quite important to make those blood smears 
as soon as you take the sample out of the patient because then the cells are fresh and they look the morphology is the best it, the, it can be to be evaluated. Um, so if you have the opportunity to have a hematology analyzer then it's that's really good and it's a good idea to look at both the hematology analyzer results and the blood smear results. So and one of the things that the hematology analyzer results will do is give you an idea about which of the populations that you might need to look at the most on the blood smear. So if you have high or low white cells, then obviously you're going to spend a little bit more time looking at the white cells and the white cell morphology. But there will be a proportion of patients that might have an inflammatory response that may not actually have white cells outside of the normal range. And that's when we look at the morphology on the blood smear and we see that we can see toxic change in the neutrophils. And if we're seeing toxic change in the neutrophils, we're looking for the neutrophil um, cytoplasm to be a little bit more blue or basophilic. We're looking to see dole bodies, so that's little blue sort of dots in those neutrophil cytoplasms. And there is a little bit of a species difference there because we can see a few dots in feline neutrophils, a few dole bodies in feline neutrophils and not worry so much about it. But it becomes much more of an important finding when we see it in our other species. And then we'll also look for little things like vacuolation or a little bit of foaminess. And all of those things can tell us that we probably do have an inflammatory demand. Again, this is a reason why it's really important to make the blood smear as fresh as possible because all of those changes might come about if you just leave the blood sample sitting in the EDTA. So if, you, if it's sort of 24 to 48 hours before you make that blood smear, we might see those changes and wonder whether or not we've got an inflammatory response when actually it might just be that it's been sitting in the EDTA tube and we've had changes in vitro rather than actually reflecting what's going on in the patient in vivo. Does that so, depend on the temperature that you store that at as, as well? Is that going to accelerate it if they're kept at room temperature? It can do. So obviously if you can keep it cool um, and that's fridge temperature, then that's obviously preferable. Um, freezing is obviously actually quite problematic because you tend to get lice cells if you freeze. So um, that's one of the other things that just when you're putting it into the fridge, try to be careful that you don't push it right to the back wall of the fridge. Um, because sometimes if it touches the back wall, then things freeze a little bit more. They do, as I found out last night, but that's a separate story. <laughs> so, um, okay. so, so if we, um, so we have a, you know, a standard way of collecting it, uh, collecting the, the, the blood sample, make sure we put it in the ETA uh, sample, and then, and then from that, obviously, obviously agitating that, you know, make a, make a smear from that as, as best we can. Um, and then store that that sample appropriately. Um, so do you, would you you know always so, so I suppose if you sent either if you sent the blood to an external lab or you had an internal analyzer, would you then you only look at the smear if you had any abnormal, or would you or would you think it's wise just to look at it in general and then compare what you're what you're what you're seeing to um, you know what's being reported by by the machine count. Um, I would always recommend that you look at a blood smear anyway. So um, the analyzer, particularly for the red cell population, 
a lot of the parameters that we're seeing are what we call means. So we talk about the MCHC being the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration. The MCV is the mean cell volume. So that's an average of all the cells that are there. But you might have a microcytic population that might suggest that maybe you've got a developing iron deficiency. But the overall average of the cells might be within normal limits. But if you look at the blood smear, you can see that you have a population of small cells and that's something that you can actually identify by looking on the smear that you wouldn't necessarily get from the numbers of the haematology analyzer. A lot of the new generation haematology analyzers will give you a little plot. So you will get a, a sort of a dot plot of the cells. So each of the cells that are measured by the machine will be represented by one of those dots. And it is worth probably getting a little bit familiar with what pattern of dot sort of plot you expect to see for each of your species. Um, because that can be one of those sort of instantaneous things that as you look at the results, you can go, that's not a normal sort of pattern for what I expect to see, so there must be something going on. And then if you go and look at the blood smear, you'll be able to get a little bit more information about what's actually going on and see what's going on in those cells. Um, one of the things that we talked about earlier on is, you know, that we get sort of more fun fungal diseases abroad. We're beginning to get some interesting um, sort of infectious diseases coming into the UK. So Babesia, for example, we've now had quite a number of cases uh, where the animal hasn't travelled anywhere. So the dog has not been abroad, um, but has Babesia. And interestingly, there is an article um, by some French colleagues where they've actually looked at the plot of the red cells and they've identified that with a particular abnormal pattern there is perhaps an increased index of suspicion that Babesia might be present and then they spend a little bit more time looking at the blood smear and actually identifying the organisms on the blood smear. So there are all sorts of things that once you once you know what the normal is it's much easier to see the abnormal and then you get more information out of it. Mm. Thank you. So do you have a, an, a, an approach when you're looking at a blood smear itself? Do you, um, in, in general, do you, do you scan at a low power, look at the feathered edge, count one things in particular? or I do try and have a standard approach, rather like a clinical exam. I have a, a way that I go through things, and hopefully that means I don't miss anything. Um, so I tend particularly to scan all the way around the edge of the smear, so down the feathered edge and around the edge of the smear. And one of the things I'm looking for there is things like microfilaria and also sometimes our parasitized red cells are more likely to be at the peripheral edges of the blood smear. I also do tend to have a, a quick look through the rest of the smear just to see whether they're really, um, there's an even distribution of cells, whether there's a lot of cell clumping. And I'll spend a little bit of time perhaps looking a little bit further back in the smear where I can see whether have we got agglutination or rouleau in our red cells. That's not always as easy to tell on a direct smear, um, but that's a little bit of something that you can pick up. Um, I then spend a little bit more time looking down the feathered edge, and at the feathered edge I'm looking particularly for platelet clumps because that does tend to be where the platelet clumps end up. Um, and if I don't see them down at the feathered edge, then I will perhaps just look at the base of the smear and just see if there's a lot of platelets that have been left at the back that haven't spread along the slide. Um, and also while I'm looking down the feathered edge, I'll look to see, have we got any sort of really atypical populations of cells, any really big cells? And sometimes mast cells are a little bit more easy to see down the feathered edge as well. 
So once I'm comfortable that the cells are reasonably distributed and I know where where I can look for things, then I'll look just behind the feathered edge of what we call the monolayer, so which is where the cells are meant to be evenly spaced. And depending on which textbook you read, it's either half of them are touching each other or there's a little bit of space between all of the cells. For me to find it, I've actually look back from the feathered edge until I stop seeing the big gaps. And then I, that's probably where I'm comfortable I'm in the monolayer. And once I'm in there, then I look a little bit for the distribution of white cells because you can get a, a bit of a feel for how many white cells there are. Um, and I also look at the distribution of the red cells and I can, depending on how busy we are, I sometimes amuse myself by trying to guess the PCV before I look at the haematology report printout. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's pretty good. Sometimes I'm a few percentage off. Um, <clears throat> And also, that's also the area where I'll then go up to oil and I'll look at the actual morphology of the cells. So I will look at the white cells and I'll look at the neutrophils for the toxic change. I'll look at the lymphocytes to see whether they're normal, reactive or possibly an atypical population. Um, and I'll also look for platelet numbers particularly. And then I'll spend a little bit of time looking at the red cells. And I'll look for the size of the red cells, whether they're even sizes or whether they're very different sizes. I'll look to see how much hemoglobin is in the red cells um, and whether that hemoglobin is spread evenly or whether we've got a little bit more central pallor in the middle, um, suggesting that perhaps there's not quite as much hemoglobin as we might like in the cells. Whether the hemoglobin has been pushed to one side of the cells, so have we got a sort of eccentrocytes in there and a little bit of oxidative damage going on. Um, and also then I'll look to see, do we have polychromatophils, our younger cells, which have that sort of slightly bluish purple hue because they've still got a little bit of the nucleic acid material left in there, so it gives them a little bit more colour. And I'll look to see whether we've got any nucleated erythrocytes as well. So if I see nucleated erythrocytes, which is erythrocytes that are a little bit younger so they haven't actually lost their nucleus, then I spend a little bit, quite a bit more time just making sure that I do have the polychromatophils there as well. Because whenever we're looking at maturation of our populations, we want to see that there's a steady orderly maturation through to maturity. So if I'm seeing nucleated red stages, then I want to see those polychromatophils there as well before I get to the mature erythrocyte. If I'm seeing nucleated red stages and it seems to skip the polychromatophil stage, that's actually quite a concerning abnormality. And then that means that I might be a little bit more worried about what's actually going on in the bone marrow and whether or not the bone marrow is working in an orderly fashion. So, um, and then I just spend a little bit more time looking for interesting things. <laughs> to, to amuse yourself. So, so when you're looking at a, a lower power I imagine a lower magnification and the distribution of the white cells so do, so do you have um a, a, like a rule of thumb about how many should be in a in a plane of field so you get an idea of numbers how, how do you actually do that because I know I do it incorrectly um it depends very much on how regular your smears are so if you've got a regular sort of distribution of cells over the smear you can look at your times 10 field and about a quarter of your times 10 field is approximately the number times 10 to the 9. So if you don't have nice times 10 fields though and you've got uneven distribution of cells then your numbers are going to be a little bit 
hit and miss. One of the ways that I say that I think is probably easiest to work with if you don't look spend an awful lot of time or spend all of your days looking at blood smears like I do is maybe having a range of samples where you know what the white cell count is. So have a sample where you know the white cell count is really low, a sample where you know the, the white cell count is low normal, a sample where you know the white cell count is high normal, and then a sample where you know the white cell count is high. And if you've got those as standard reference smears in your laboratory right next to your microscope, you can actually just compare your patient sample with those standard reference ones and go, actually, is it does it look more likely that I've got too many white cells or does it look more likely that I've got white cells with a normal limit? Or am I really looking around for white cells and actually have I got not got enough white cells at all on this sample? And I think that's probably easier than, you know, trying to trying to guess a little bit the precise numbers of cells. And um would say, say for, for me being an inexperienced sort of blood smear, I suppose a, a lot of my white cells tend to be in the feathered edge rather than in a, in a monolayer. So I suppose I, that's the way that I've learnt with my inferior technique to have a look for white cells because that's I kind of know how it should look in that area, which I know is is uh, is inappropriate. Which is <laughs> no, I mean that's absolutely fine, and that's why I say have reference slides where particularly if you're making the slides all the time you know what the numbers are um you will always get a few more white cells down the feathered edge so your neutrophils um will tend to travel a little bit more towards the feathered edge your lymphocytes will tend to stay a little bit more within the body of the smear so the monolayer or looking down that monolayer area is where you probably get the best representative mix of cells that kind of tells you a little bit more what's going on in your patient um, but there will be samples where I look at where I go, well, there's not very much in the monolayer, but there are loads in the feathered edge. And that's just a little bit of a judgment call. Um, and, you know, as with anything in veterinary medicine, there is no absolute rule because our patients and the patient samples don't necessarily always work the same way or the way that it should do according to the textbook. And then when you're having a look at, say, platelet number, do you, do you go to a high-power field and, and count the number that you can see and move on and compare that to, to the actual um, uh, laboratory count? Um, for platelets, if you haven't got big platelet clumps on your smear, so if you've got big platelets clumps on your smear, um, then any kind of count is probably going to be a little bit unreliable because obviously you're not counting all of those that are in the, in the clumps or the clumps are really unevenly distributed, so that makes a problem. Um, as a general rule of thumb, and perhaps a little bit lazy way of looking at it, we tend to say, well, if you've got clumping, you've probably got enough platelets, so we, we might not worry about a- it so adequate much. Adequate, <laughs> <laughs> Sufficient. <I completely> agree. <laughs> um, but if you haven't got any platelet clumps at all and you know you haven't got a clot in the sample, then that is something that you can actually look at on the monolayer. So... I do try and find that monolayer area. I go up to times 100 oil and I try and count the number of platelets in 10 fields and average them. And once I've counted the number of platelets in 10 fields and got that average number, then I multiply that by 20. And 20 probably gives you a slightly higher number than you should really have, but I just... A lot of the time when you're doing this kind of thing, it's 2 a.m. in the morning and the dog's bleeding or, you know, you're a little bit worried about it. So anything that's actually a nice round number that where I know that the number I'm getting is reasonably reliable, I think is better. So because I say multiply by 20, um, I tend to say 
provided you get above 50, the dog is probably not going to, or cat is probably not going to hemorrhage spontaneously because of lack of platelets. Um, but obviously, if you are down at that level, you are going to be a little bit worried. And if you have less than 50, then you are going to be very concerned about sort of hemostasis in your patient. Um, so why I say that you 20 is probably slightly overestimating is because technically, and this is very technical, you need to know the width of field of your microscope. And there is essentially a fudge factor for that width of field and usually that comes out as 17 point something or other and it will be different for each microscope um, so which is why I say I find it easier you multiply it by 20 you know that's a slight overestimation so that's something to be quite aware of when you're looking at textbooks and when you're looking at articles if they kind of say well their cutoff is 40 before they sort of they're concerned about um sort of spontaneous hemorrhage is how have they actually estimated those platelet numbers or determined those platelet numbers um, have they sort of multiplied by a really complicated factor and that's why they've got that slightly lower cutoff yeah I, I suppose clinically um, when we're you know the main focus I think of, of platelets are say mediated diseases yeah. in which case quite often there's there's none. Not always none. <laughs> hunt, hunt the platelet, in which case then then it's obvious. Now I think you're you know I think looking at clumps, saying yeah, adequate or looking at numbers and and trying have a have a guesstimate. I suppose it is is definitely something we um, when we're looking at blood smears we always we always count because I think that's more of the emergency safe focus. But but uh, but it but but I think with that, do you think there are some um, traps for young players if you like or, or novices looking at smear of either over or over interpreting some any any information you see on a on a blood smear do you think that are there common things that people looking at mistaking eosin and fields for base fields or or toxic changes for just normal changes uh, there are a few sort of cell types that are always if you've never seen them before it's kind of like oh that's a bit of a surprise so um we do have, in dogs particularly, we do have sometimes the eosinophils don't stain. So you will see big sort of gaps in the cells which look like sort of vacuoles and they look like the sort of the granulocytes, but in fact they're actually eosinophils where the granules haven't stained. So they're called grey eosinophils and handily they are most commonly seen in greyhounds and other sighthounds, but we will see them other other sort of species as well. Um, and actually... Um, one of the residents who's just graduated from here identified this pop a similar population in cats. So there are some cats where the eosinophil granules don't stain. Um, so it's one of those things when you look at it and go, well, is this a really toxic neutrophil population? And then once you're more familiar with what they look like, actually you can go, oh no, it's an, it's an eosinophil where the, the granules haven't stained and you don't worry about it. Um, other than that, I mean, lymphocytes can always be challenging working out whether these are a normal population, a reactive population, or actually a population that we need to be concerned about. Um, and that's something that we all sort of experience. And I still have sort of samples where I look at it and I go, hmm, 
I'm not so sure. <laughs> so, and I write a comment where I go, well, I think they're probably reactive, but <laughs> if you have very large lymph, lymph nodes somewhere else, then maybe you should aspirate the lymph nodes and we should have a look and see what populations are actually in those lymph nodes. I suppose there's a good uh, uh, call about um, the information that people actually write on pathology forms for you, because if you're because whenever I look at um, blood smears, which is look, we had something I I don't know why it started, but but we we do for every patient that comes into the emergency room um, that we know what we're concerned about. Yeah. And so so if we send that to you, if we don't tell you our concerns, and obviously, you know that that the you know some communication needs to needs to happen, whether they are enlarged lymph nodes or. Um, yeah, don't worry, Kate. I can't see a plate there either. So, but is there anything else you know, <laughs> yeah. going on? I think. I mean, it, it's always helpful when, whenever you send anything into the pathology lab, that you write down at least, you know, why did the patient come to see you? What are you worried about clinically, and what are you hoping to find out from the sample you've sent to us? Um, because sometimes, you know, particularly for cytologies, and I know we're we're moving off topic just a little bit. Um, you may find that you don't get an awful lot of cells come back. But if you tell us the type of where you've taken that sample from, we can say, well, actually, there is a type of tumour where you might not get a lot of cells out. So the fact that we're not seeing anything might say that this is the next step that you have to do in order to try and work out what's going on. So if you tell us what you're expecting to see, we can say, well, actually, that's, you know, that's... Um, still a possibility or no what we're seeing means that that isn't a possibility anymore and you can look for something else but if we don't know what you want to find out then we can't necessarily help you very much with that very very so, good i mean the other thing sorry i was going to say is if you if your patient is on any drugs then it's a really good idea to tell us what drugs it's on so there are a lot of drugs that can have side effects on um, sort of haematology sort of parameters um, and particularly when we've got IMHA patients there are quite a number of drugs that might precipitate an IMHA type disease process we probably won't give you an extensive list of every single drug that might be considered but if you say well our patient is on x y and z drug we can say well don't worry about x drug but y and z might be drugs that maybe you should think about switching out and changing to something else because they have been reported to be seen with these types of diseases. Yeah, that, that's yeah, and, and, you know, a very very good point. I was, I was just having a think if we if we stick with having a look at a blood smear and the erythrocyte changes. I think like sometimes I, I, I definitely to this day can struggle to say is that a spherocyte or is that is that a, a, a smaller red blood cell in comparison to, to everything else um and we, we dwell on my my own uh, deficiencies but are there are there um changes that that iatrogenically that we can make um to create damaged red blood cells is that is that a like i'm thinking more of um like schistocytes or or uh, other damages to, to red blood cells. Is there something that you know you you would not say to people? Don't overinterpret that. Depending on X or Y. If you've forgotten to take the needle off the syringe before you put the blood into the tube, then you will get a lot of sheer injuries. So you will see the banana-shaped schistocytes and the sort of the irregular-shaped acanthocytes. 
Um, so that's something that actually might be relevant if you if you've done that it's probably worth telling the pathologist that that's what you've done um there will be other changes that we might say well and we can see in things like eccentrocytes or heinz bodies that give us oxidative damage and that wouldn't be affected by sort of putting it through the needle so if we saw those changes we could flag those up as being relevant um, but we might say well maybe the schistocytes and the acanthocytes are not so relevant in this particular sample and we'd only worry about it if you took another sample and sort of put it handled it in the better manner <laughs> um, and we saw those same changes again yeah <clears throat> I, I think because it because you don't want to you know you never want to over interpret what what you're what you're seeing before you i suppose yeah. it's always so the when I, I um i actually listened to when when uh, Shailen was podcasting talking to um, to Andrew Parry about uh, diagnostic imaging and, and the, the fundamental thing is like what is your question and I think it's probably works well with same. pathology yeah. if you you know what is my question if I'm looking at blood smear you know are there enough neutrophils are there platelets you know, what do the red blood cells mm -hmm. look like and nothing more complicated than that so if we get our, our result from the uh, from the CBC um, so what 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 piques your interest because there are as you as you mentioned before you know the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration mean corpuscular volume red cell distribution width there's all these things that for for most part i imagine a lot of us will just gloss over like what what what, what do you what do you take when you when you look at uh, those those results particularly say with the with the red blood cell information yeah. i mean one of the first things I always do, or try and remember to do, is to look at the haemoglobin in the hematocrit. And for most of our small animal species, the haemoglobin multiplied by about three comes to about the level of the hematocrit. So if we've got a very different number, then we already know that we've probably got some issues going on with the red cell and how the red cells are being measured. So there will be things that might affect our haemoglobin measurement, and one of those might be lipemia. So that will give a little bit of an interference, and then we might see some smudge cells on the on the blood smear as well. Um, but probably the things that d sort of cause most issues with our machines is if we have agglutination with the IMHA. So if we have hemolysis, we'll have a higher haemoglobin and we'll have a higher MCHC. Um, and having a high MCHC is another one of those things that actually that's not physiologically possible. So if my machine tells me I have a high MCHC, I know that I have something wrong. So either there's an error in the machine or there is an issue very much with um, the red cells. So, and then I will spend a little bit more time looking on the morphology and looking at the differences. Um, if I see a low MCHC and a high MCV, then I'm hoping it's a regenerative population, so a slightly younger, larger population. Um, and I'll look for polychromasia on the blood smear, and I'll look to see slightly young, slightly larger cells with a little bit more central pallor. Um, if the machine's coming up with a low MCV, then obviously I'm worried about microcytosis, and I'm going to be looking for those red cells on the blood smear, and also looking to see whether we've got things that might say where well, we've got iron deficiency and you know worrying about chronic external blood loss so those are sort of things that immediately once I see sort of MCHC or MCV changes and if I see that the haemoglobin and the hematocrit don't quite match then I'll spend a lot more time looking at the red cells um, 
platelets will quite often come out low from your hematology analyzer because they just don't like trying to estimate clumped platelets. So and that's always something that if you get a low platelet count from a hematology analyzer, particularly in our cats where the platelets tend to clump a lot more, um, I will always look at the blood smear just to see whether or not we've got platelet clumping. And if we've got platelet clumping, then I probably won't worry about what the machine's telling me. I'll just go, well, it's having a bad day. Um, and then obviously the white cells, if you get sort of a neutrophilia or increased white cells, then you're going to be thinking about probably inflammation or maybe a physiological stress response. Um, we probably worry more actually when we don't have very many neutrophils. So that usually suggests that our, if we've got a neutropenia, so a genuinely low number of neutrophils, that usually suggests that our patient is very unwell and has a severe overwhelming inflammation somewhere. So that's probably something that we worry about a bit more. Um, it is worth, again, looking at the blood serum and just making sure that the numbers on the blood smear match up with what's going on with the machine, um, particularly in the summer months. Some of the haematology analyzers don't like, like getting hot, so they start to be a little bit more um, fluid with what numbers they produce. So um, it's, it's worthwhile knowing a little bit how temperature and how in the environment of, around the machine might actually affect some of the numbers coming out. Oh, right, that's oh, it's uh, pretty good. <laughs> um, and uh, th see, there, there's always like advances with uh, the technology, but it, is it mainly based around um, passing light through cells that are that are spun down? Is that is that the the what, what's behind it? The newer generation analyzers will all try and pass cells through one at a time through a channel, and usually they will have light or lasers coming in at more than one angle. And it's the the way that the light is scattered um, that tells the machine a little bit about the size of the cell and also what sort of content is in the cell. Um, so, and that's sometimes another reason why machines often have difficulty identifying cat platelets is because the cat red cells are a little bit smaller and the cat platelets are usually a little bit larger in size. And neither of them have much in the way of nucleic acid content. So therefore the machine is trying to differentiate them on size alone rather than looking at what the content is of those two cells. Um, so that's why there's, there's often quite a bit of challenge in getting those platelets and red cells well separated. Um, we had one patient I remember that came in as an out-of-hours patient here where the machine um, gave it a made the neutrophils or counted a lot of the cells as eosinophils and actually it was a really toxic neutrophilic um, patient so um, they were, rather than being eosinophils it was really left shifted very toxic neutrophils so that was something that we could see on the smear um, the machine had obviously identified there was an abnormality it just hadn't quite got the abnormality right <laughs> So, <laughs> so, so with um, you mentioned it before, like lipemia affecting certain things, would would any other would would icterus affect the way that the the hematology analyses work? Um, icterus might have a little bit of an impact on the hemoglobin result, but it would probably have to be quite substantial to make a, a big difference. Okay. Um, so usually it's the lipemia because it being sort of looking slightly opaque, it stops the light getting through, um, and then that sort of makes a problem with the 
more with the hemoglobin, not so much with the individual cells, but because by the time it's running it through in the individual cells, it's usually in a dilute um, or sheath fluid. So the plasma is not causing such an issue. But when we're looking at the hemoglobin, we'll, we'll be trying to put it through what is mostly sort of plasma. And then we get more of a sort of a, a lipid interference. We don't, we don't tend to focus a lot, do we, on, on hemoglobin concentrations um, in, in dogs and cats, for example, because we always talk about PCVs or, or hematocrits rather than hemoglobin. But, the, but in people, hemoglobin is what they talk about. They don't talk about um, PCV. But in my understanding, that, that's just because of the, um, the red blood cell disorders that, that are quite common in people. So you want to know the oxygen carrying capability? Is that...? Um, I'm... To be honest, it's one of those things that I'm never quite sure why the human medics focus quite so much on haemoglobin as the absolute cutoff, and we look more for the PCVs on the hematocrits. Um, I think it's just a little bit of a difference. We could look more at haemoglobin, but we're just I think we're more used to looking at PCVs and hematocrits. One of the things might be is that it's probably easier for the majority of vets in practice to do a spun PCV on a centrifuge because most of them will have a centrifuge relatively available whereas not everybody will have a haematology analyzer relatively available. Um, and the PCV is actually probably a pretty robust um, measurement, and actually usually that's considered to be the gold standard. So if we have a PCV and a blood smear, we've actually got most of the information that we need in order to work out what's going on. And all you need is a microscope and a centrifuge. That helps, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, um, do, do you have any any further comments about uh, about CBC, Kate? Do you think we've missed uh, any any big topics? Um, I think we've covered a fair bit. Yeah. So, could, could I ask maybe with, with, with the rise of say uh, um, like Babesia or, or other you know potential um, uh, bloodborne diseases? Um, if if you su- suspect that, then obviously you need to to make a fresh smear and send that then send that to your your pathology. But why why um, I'm right in understanding that that ear veins might be better obtaining a, a blood sample for the parasites? Is that is that right? Um, there are a number of articles that would suggest that if you take a sort of a very much of a capillary vein, so one that's in the ear where supposedly the tra- blood is traveling a little bit slower um that actually it does seem to be more easier to pick up those parasitized cells so do we know why i know okay. is the short answer <laughs> that's very good that's <laughs> if somebody good. does then please let us know <laughs> yeah. yeah that's good um so so really like thank thank you uh, well, actually for... i suppose it might be that the cells are a little bit less deformable so if they're actually carrying most of the way when red cells travel through capillaries they have the discocyte shape um, in most of our species, and that's actually very bendy. Yeah. So it can sort of bend its way through capillaries and, and move through quite fast. If you've actually got a parasite sitting within the red cell, um, then it might not be as deformable and it might not be able to be moving quite so fast, which may be why we might see it a little bit more accumulating in those sort of capillaries where the, the pressure to get the blood through is not quite as as significant or as, as strong as it might be in other parts of the body. 
Well, but that's speculation. You've you've got me convinced. <laughs> see, um, uh, see, see. Uh, I think we'll wrap it up there. And, and uh, thank you very much for your time today, Kate. Um, and uh, I, th- I think you, you've uh, you've dubbed yourself in for a couple of uh, further podcasts. I think we'll talk about cytology. I, I, I kind of like that that I, that idea, or maybe a bit about biochemistry. So, uh, um, so, so thank you very much, Kate. And, and also thanks uh, to you for for listening. Um, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, um, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. Um, if you could really, uh, it'd be great if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That would be fantastic. And don't forget to tell your friends. So we'll place um, any show notes of the RVC pages. So just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, and it should be top of the tree. So remember, if you have any comments, suggestions on the podcast, then get in touch. You can either email me at dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Tom Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.